you can't tell the story of American racism without also telling the story of American religion. I think what's most pernicious about the model minority myth is the temptation it offers to Asian Americans. That at the heart of the American story, and therefore the heart of the Asian American story, is that we should pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we should live lives of upward mobility. That's largely what they've told is the story of immigration in America. Instead of saying, why have we created a society that has such extraordinary forms of inequality and injustice? Instead, we say, oh, it must be because these people are black or brown or yellow or what have you. We do so because it allows us to have the more convenient story, which then lets most of us off the hook. My name is Jonathan Tran, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Tran, Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology in the George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University, where he's been since 2006. Jonathan teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in theology, and his research examines the theological and political implications of human life and language. Jonathan's originally from Southern California by way of Vietnam, and he completed his graduate studies in theology and ethics at Duke University. He's published really interesting works like Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism and the Vietnam War and the Theologies of Memory. This was a guest that got recommended by a listener, and it's a pretty intense and interesting one, Sharon. What do you think? Yeah, he's fascinating to me, mainly because I, I feel like we all go through our human experience. And we wonder about things like God and religion and the meaning of life. And he's made his life's work literally about that. He told us some stories that were really poignant. He actually started with a pretty triggering story. So I will warn you guys about that. But I think that very traumatic life event has made him much more sensitive to what it means for all of us in terms of life and death and a greater power. And I think I really enjoyed it because I didn't grow up with religion per se. Being Chinese and Buddhism and like my mom was, my mom had always gone to the temples. So so Buddhist culture and Buddhist thought was part of my upbringing, but you know, not religion. And growing up in a place like New York that has a lot of different diverse cultures and other things, I had always been exposed to Jewish holidays or Christian holidays, you know, I had been to Christian youth groups. And so I had my own, I had my own way of finding my way around religion. And so I think all of us can probably relate to how we feel about certain stories that we've learned or how we feel about just the meaning of, of spirituality. Yeah. And hearing how he found religion, I could, I could kind of relate to that because kind of comparing finding it but then comparing it to the the modern mythologies that we hear. So you hear a kind of an interesting nerd out and chat about that as well. So this is an interesting one. We think you're going to enjoy our chat with our new friend, Dr. Jonathan Tran. Jonathan, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here with both of you. 
So, Jonathan, you are a well-written fellow <laughs> with lots of stuff out there. I guess what we really want to know, though, man, is where are you from? I live in Waco, Texas. I grew up in L.A. and Orange County, so I claim L.A. roots. <laughs> I don't know if those L.A. roots would claim me, though. I feel like there's something to unpack there. Well, I mean, maybe as, as Sharon might know, people who grow up in L.A., Orange County have this geography, this imaginative geography in their minds about the rest of the country. So there's L.A. on one side. There's Manhattan on the other. There's a vast wasteland in the middle pocketed by Las Vegas or something like that. Right. So if you grew up in a place like LA, a place like Waco is just unimaginable. When I first moved out to Waco some 15 years ago, my brother called me up and he said, what's Waco like? And I was trying to describe it. And then he said, have you seen this movie, Napoleon Dynamite? Is it like that? And I said, well, not quite as civilized. Do you ever get asked, where are you really from? I haven't gotten that as much. I think it's become... Maybe people are a little bit more aware how politically incorrect that is. Really? But yeah, not in Waco. So they know enough to not ask that. But maybe they're thinking that I'm not truly an American. Yeah. Many of our guests are, they get asked twice. They're like, okay, but you may- for, or, or, or it's happened in our youth even. More so right. in our youth than it is today, to your point, Jonathan. Okay. Yeah, maybe I, I guess my answer would be if someone said, where are you from? And I said, Waco, and they persisted. And I said, LA. And then they said, where are you really from? Then I'd say Anaheim. Because of those, <laughs> those of us from Orange County, LA know there's a very big difference between LA and Anaheim. So you actually never get, do you ever get into the motherland? Do you ever get into the roots conversation? The microaggressions are a little bit more sophisticated these days, you might say. In fact, I was actually on a panel yesterday, and we were talking about Asian American history. And one of the, my fellow panelists was saying how great it is that some states now mandate Asian American history. And one of the callers said something like, how can you square the fact that we teach Asian American history as a good thing when we don't even teach American history? And what they meant was we hide such huge parts of American history, which is undoubtedly true. But the premise was that Asian American history wasn't American history. It's so funny because there's a little bit of truth to that, the first part of the statement, right? I mean, if you've read the people's history of the United States, we tend to kind of ignore histories written by the winners. We sometimes don't write about the things that we didn't do right. And we sometimes repeat those mistakes as you look at kind of foreign involvement and the result of that foreign involvement or keeping some people out or letting some people in. I have to ask point blank. My guess is, <laughs> I do know because of my research, Tran is a Vietnamese name. How did your family come to this country? Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on your previous point. Yeah, I mean, a part of the challenge in this moment is how do we tell our history honestly when the honesty of our past makes the present and future, well, it puts it under question. And yeah. I think that's the force of the question the person was asking. And specifically, you can imagine the vast swaths of American history that include things like chattel slavery. We would just rather forget that. I mean, the incredible irony of various states across the country banning something like Morrison's Beloved, a book that explicitly lays out the danger of forgetting our past, and yet people are legally making us forget our past. So, you know, how you think about this and then how you bring particular geographies of the past into the present and then putting them in relationship to each other without putting them in competitive relationship with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not zero sum. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard 
set of questions. But, you know, I grew up in LA. Our family came to America in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War. So we came as war refugees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old were you? At the time I was two. Yeah. So my first, this story is a bit triggering. So I should say that ahead of time. But my first memory in life, we had been in America two years and my family was from the North part of Vietnam. And if folks don't know, the Northern parts of Vietnam was kind of Mandarin Chinese culture, kind of elitist, highly classed culture. Our family came from wealth which partly met in our family's history, my mom and her mom and her mom ahead of her, they didn't know how to raise kids. They all had nannies. So my mom was raised by nannies. And so when the war happened and they were forced out of their money and to the South and eventually to America, my mom had very little idea how to parent us. So she gets to America in 75 and we're war refugees. So what that means is that we didn't choose to come to America. That wasn't part of our aspirational dreams. Right. This yeah. is a different story, which is also a powerful story than say some of my friends whose parents came from elite universities in Taiwan and then mm-hmm, went and mm-hmm. did graduate study at Cornell or something like that. Well, we didn't want to come to America. In fact, there's large parts of my family that still talk about going back to Vietnam. So we were in America, not by choice. They were not used to the poverty. They certainly weren't used to the culture. So just a couple years in, and again, this is my first memory in life, but I can't help but think it colors everything that goes forward, certainly for my mom, but certainly also for me, insofar it is the first memory. My brother and I were crossing the street, and I was five at the time, and he was six, And this is the triggering part. So just to let folks know, he was hit and killed by a car right in front of me. Oh my goodness. Mm. That's the first thing I remember about life. And so it's those scenes when you're a kid, your concepts for death are very minimal. And so you just have the raw images floating around in your head. And that is largely my introduction, not only to life, but to America. I need a moment from that story, Jonathan. That's a really heavy story you just shared. Was it just the two of you who had come up in terms of siblings, or did you have other siblings as well? So there's four of us. My older brother, Terry, who's a bit older, six years older than I am, my sister, Kim, and then David, the one that was hit and killed. I mean, your question's a good one, because how do you go on as a five-year-old? The next few years would be equally, if you can imagine, equally difficult, because we were poor. And being poor immigrants met negotiating life, say, on the underbelly of capitalist societies, which meant for us, we moved constantly. And any kid who has ever moved will tell you that that's a little death every time. Moving whatever groups of friends or community you've established, and then moving as a stranger when right now, as you guys both know, you go to Southern California, there's tons of Asians. There's more Chinese there than anywhere sure. outside of China or more Vietnamese anywhere outside of Vietnam, right? And yeah, yeah. the culture is everywhere. Back then, that really wasn't the case. And so I would often be the only Asian kid around. And you kind of enter into the wild west of childhood and the kinds of brutalities and small daily forms of violence that occur normally in childhood. But then if you're Asian, you're Vietnamese, then you're negotiating that with every single move. Well, it's when you're a kid, your entire life is changing. You also have this dichotomy. So you're looking, you just need some form of a constant. Right. And moving doesn't give that to you. Yeah. And that's where Sharon's question is really pertinent, right? Because the one thing I would have had no matter where I moved would be my brother because he's a year older than me. 
So we would have probably shared most of schooling together, except for those periods of separation between middle school, high school, that kind of thing. But that's where the loneliness really begins to trek out because you're really just alone. Yeah. Did you find yourself having to pretend to be someone else in those moments when you came to a new school or a new neighborhood? What were some of the things that you may have done to fit in? Yeah. I mean, you don't know because you're just, you're surviving. Right. And the pretending is predicated on having something to pretend from, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have enough of a sense of self to even have the facade or say the power to pretend. I think that these are probably the early origins of writing. Yeah. Because writing is to enter into imaginative conceptual space. And when you're that alone, that lonely, then imaginative conceptual space is where you have friends, is where you have a world. And so imagination was as much an act of creativity as it was an act of survival. And I think that's kind of what gave me and still gives me very much to this day a foothold in my own life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you want to be a writer? When you were young, or what did you want to be when you wanted to, when you grew up? I think I wanted to be what every little kid wants to be—a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there's something about that. Similar, yeah. Going going back to your question, sure. I mean, maybe animal life is a way for children to build companionship into their worlds. Right. And maybe that I just had a hyper version of that. It ended up being that I was terrible at AP Bio, so that ended in illusion. <laughs> I was going to be. Uh, veterinarian to my mother's great disappointment. But yeah, eventually I became a writer. And that's a really great question because I think if I were to articulate what I do as a professor, even maybe ahead of teaching, I would describe myself as a writer. Yeah. How did mom and dad react when you came home or whenever you made the decision and said, you know what, this medical thing, this veterinary thing isn't working. I'm going to become a writer. What was their response? Well, so I think my mom still thinks I'm somehow going to make money as a writer. And I'm always... She still thinks. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm always like, well, I'm not that kind of writer. I'm an academic. (laughs) So a bonus in academic writing means maybe you'll get like an extra few Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Right, right, (laughs) right. (laughs) So the book that we'll talk about has sold remarkably well for an academic book, but that is nothing compared to the standards of New York right, right. as bestsellers. So it's done remarkably well. Now I have a suspicion that the reason it's done remarkably well is some combination of supply chain issues and mom buying out the very few copies. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, my mom, she had no categories for what a writer does. Right. And so I think she always thought that doesn't seem like a very secure kind of job. And I think she's been really surprised, pleasantly surprised that it is actually a quite secure life that we've made for ourselves. But it's still not quite legible, I think, for many Asian American folks, especially like immigrants, when they're thinking, if you've been formed so deeply in how are you going to take care of the next mortgage payment, right? then something as precarious as writing probably just isn't very legible. Well, what's interesting about your writing and your profession, right? You are not just a writer, you're a theologian, right? You studied religion. And I guess the question I have is, where did faith come in? When did it enter your life? Was it something your family brought over from Vietnam? Is it something your family found? Is it something you found as a little kid? Because never mind the choice to go study it eventually and to become a practicing academic, so to speak, who is published in writing in this space. And 
I want to talk about that, but where did the urge to go to dive deeper on this come from? Where did faith enter your life? In some ways, going back to the idea of finding imaginative conceptual spaces to find one's footing in the world, in some ways, I imagine theology is the widest frame of doing that. My work is primarily in pretty abstract philosophical work on language and theology that not only involves conceptual space, it thinks about conceptual space. It thinks about how concepts work, how our imaginations work. My family came to America. We were adopted by a Lutheran church. So what happened was, long story short, Americans lose the war in Vietnam. It's a devastating effect for America, going back to your earlier comment, namely because America, one, tells its story, its history through wars, and two, wars that it won. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly sure. important because it legitimizes the present and future project of America. It suggests that we are literally on the side of winners, going back to your comment earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, we lost the Vietnam War. So how do you yeah. tell that story? Well, I think you've said in your writing, when I went to Vietnam as a 20-year-old, you go to the museum and it's the Museum of the American War. They don't call yeah, it the Vietnam right. War over they call there. It the American <laughs> War, and very well they should. Partly to distinguish that they saw America as perpetrating that war, but also because they were in a series of other wars. Yeah, with the French, with the Chinese, etc. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you think about that. So the war ends. America feels a great deal of consternation about the way the war ended. So one of the things that U.S. Congress did was enact legislation that allowed for 10,000, quote unquote, friends of America to come over. And this is a great parallel to what's happened recently in Afghanistan. Yeah. What happens or what didn't happen, right? Yeah, for, exactly. So 10,000 quickly becomes 140,000. And so what the U.S. government did is partner with churches, Protestant and Catholic, to adopt communities of Vietnam, mostly families. So our family was adopted by Lutheran church, and they were really important in those early years. I still remember them really wrapping their arms around my mom when David was killed. But we quickly left that. And so I grew up not religious, but going back to the kind of wandering hope for home through your imagination Theology was really important. So here's an example. By seventh grade, I didn't believe in anything. And then we read mythology. I think it was the Iliad or the Odyssey. Now, everyone in the class, even at seventh grade, knows it's mythology. But Jonathan didn't. He thought it was actually religion. And he started praying to Zeus because here was a conceptual space by which a world was imagined. Now you look back and you think, well, that's rather absurd, but that relativizes all religious or even all. You know, it's funny. What's funny, Jonathan, it isn't because growing up, I was raised in a Hindu household in Alabama, but I was also reading Marvel and DC comics. Yeah, there you go. I say this with all, a lot of my morality, I jokingly call it superhero morality, because what's the difference between Superman's choices or Hawkeye's choices versus that of Krishna? (laughs) These guys were not just heroes, these were righteous individuals. In almost all of the major religious texts, these are not necessarily superhuman, but super moral kind of beings. And I don't know, I couldn't distinguish between the two, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, you think about the tragic sensibility of an Achilles, right? or yeah. the sense of calling or vocation of an Odysseus, and those map directly onto themes within Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, any number of Right. So you can imagine if spaces, whether it be Marvel or Greek ancient culture or contemporary Christianity as the attempt to find grounding. And what they share in common is they're grounded in this world. And so the notions of tragedy or being a superhero 
mapped onto, say, moral notions, then it's not surprising what you're saying about you find space where you can. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say something that's probably very ignorant, but I- I do all the time. I'm (laughs) (laughs) That's the premise of the show, Sharon. We have a a professor on the line. So, Jonathan, are the Greek gods not really gods? (laughs) When you say that they were mythology, I was under the impression that the Greek gods had their own temples and that people were praying to Athena and Zeus way back when. Back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah, that's right. I mean- I think there's questions now about the kind of religion Greek classical culture practiced and whether it links on to how we traditionally think about religion. But in terms of practices, yeah, certainly people built altars to these folks, oriented their lives around them. So you could certainly call it a religion. So yeah, maybe it was my earliest exposure to religion, not mythology. Yeah, I think you were on the right track with praying to Zeus. I think that's acceptable as yeah. someone who's was born atheist and baptized as Catholic after getting married, but I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe the mistake was someone telling me it's just a mythology. Exactly, yeah. Maybe someone should have said it's a religion and it's one among many choices you'll face or something like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what tends to get people in trouble, myself included. We call the ancient, and I don't want to call them the dead religions, but we call it Greek mythology, Norse mythology. But Thor and Zeus were very real to people. And then what gets me into trouble is this is, again, I was literally reading about Thor and Loki in the Avengers as a kid. And then I'm reading about Krishna and Urjan and Vishnu and Ram and Robin, right? And it's, I saw a lot of parallels. And then when I went to church after a sleepover with my friends, and I learned about church or temple, Jesus or Moses, I just saw those parallels. I mean, Kal-El is Moses, to be very clear, in my mind. So I guess the point is, it's all a matter of perspective. (laughs) I mean, if you you think about, say, something like the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the contestation isn't, this is Sharon's, well, both of y'all's point, the contestation isn't mythology versus religion, gods versus gods. Right. And which god will you follow? And I would say imaginations versus imaginations. This is a really powerful book called Torture and Eucharist, and it's about Pinochet's Chile, which is basically a CIA-backed regime that is fighting against forms of social organization on the part of the poor. Because the vast majority of Chilean culture at this moment is poor, that means they're trying to hold back the entire masses of their society. And how do they do so? Well, how do regimes usually do that? Through extreme forms of violence. And the practices they used were forms of torture and what was called disappearing. So Jonathan says something about the government The next day, that's all we know. He's disappeared in the middle of the night. He shows up six months later with marks on his body that he's been clearly tortured. What that tells the rest of the communities, don't mess with the government. And so that's how the regime worked. So this goes on for years until people start enacting these stages of torture to say that this is what our government's doing. And you would have these kind of street acts, these momentary spectacles of performance that says, in this building, someone is being tortured. And there's a writer, the writer of the book says, you might think of these stage performances as imagination versus the reality of what the government is doing. A better way of understanding is as competing imaginations, how we think about the world in contestation to how other people think of the world. So to y'all's point, then the mythologies, quote unquote, were not mythical against, say, the reality of other ways, but it's competing imaginations. Yeah. Yeah. So. How do you go from that moment to praying to Zeus, 
deciding not to be a veterinarian, <laughs> going really deep into theology. <laughs> how do you make that leap? In a single bound? Well, how everyone makes leaps. I followed a girl. <laughs> oh, it's all clear now. Now it's it makes sense. Right? <laughs> Behind every philosophical explanation are daily commitments and needs, practical states of affairs. Right. So after Zeus... Maybe I didn't have enough of Sharon's sensibility. So maybe out of a sense of shame, I just became a hard atheist. And I thought all religions were myths in this negative sense. And so I just like Christians were incredibly dumb. And of course, not just dumb, but really hypocritical because they really were unethical people. I just thought that. So anyways, but I met a girl who's now my wife, <laughs> my partner, and she went to church and she seemed like a sensibly intelligent, sensibly ethical person. And I hung out with her and then eventually I became a Christian. So that's how I made the leap. The leap was by following a girl. It's the power of love, Jonathan. The power, power of love. love. So. <laughs> but how does that convert to rigorous academic study of right. theology? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that all writing all academic work is ultimately autobiographical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so maybe what I'm doing as a theologian is making sense with some attempt at rigor of your very question, which is, how do I explain my life? So let's say life begins at the death of one's brother in front of oneself, and then one later enters into a conceptual space that seems to make sense of it, tries to, And maybe one's just trying to understand what happened and how to go on. I think that's largely the work of academia in some way or other. So trying to think through those things. I relate a lot to that, Jonathan, in the sense that we're all kind of working stuff out. And if you can find a way, I don't want to say to make a living, but to make a life's work by figuring stuff out, because I don't think any of us have it figured out. Yeah. Anyone who says they figured it out is kind of lying to you, in my opinion. I think you can be at peace and you can be centered and you can be satisfied. But I think the human pursuit is being curious and trying to find these answers. And let me ask the question a different way. How do you explain what you do to people? Or how does your mom explain what you do to people now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I do want to return. I mean, you all just gave semblances of being Hindu and reading Marvel or being baptized and received in the Catholic Church. So I had to hear more about that, how you all would narrate your own stories. But yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, every attempt to say I've arrived is you hear someone say some version of that and you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, you're setting yourself up for failure, buddy, or at least a big surprise. So how does my mom explain it? She says, I'm a professor. I don't think it ever gets to the point of like, what does he profess? Like, what does he actually do or teach? You know, I certainly give her copies of my books. The first book on the Vietnam War is dedicated to my mom because that's more, in some sense, that's more her story than mine. But I don't think she is able to say much more beyond that. But I'm not even sure my kids are or my partner is, my spouses, because it's such a funky thing to be an academic at all because it presumes a kind of leisure where some people are set aside not to actually work, but to sit around and read books And there's undoubtedly forms of privilege and elite culture running through that. So it's hard to make sense of any score, I think. 
So I don't know how many professors explain what they do. So usually when I meet folks, I just say I teach at Baylor. I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's because that's legible. You know, that's legible because teaching makes sense. Now, right. I never say that to actual teachers because teachers who teach kids for, say, nine hours a day have no idea what to do with professors who teach one class a semester or something like this. In the current environment we're in, it's fine to run into it, but it's almost, do you want to admit that you talk about religion in schools all day long? <laughs> but that's why we wanted to talk to you, I guess, because, I mean, your book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, it kind of talks about there's one way that we historically and more currently have been talking about anti-racist theory of practice, and then there's kind of a second way. <laughs> and can you kind of explain the contemporary thinking and kind of where you are choosing to zag where a lot of folks are zigging? Sure. I think most people think of racism in amazingly convenient ways, ways that legitimate and license their own lives in the world. Whereas I think most of us are living what I call in the aftermarkets of racial capitalism, we're beneficiaries, which means we perpetuate systems of extraordinary injustice. So the convenient way is something like this. Racism is personal. It's possessed. Some person is possessed of certain stereotypes or biases, wrong beliefs about other people. These beliefs or biases affect interpersonal relationships insofar as people denigrate or degrade other people because they think they're better than them racially. In this story, we sometimes, these things sometimes rise to the level of structures and systems, but not often. What is most important about this story is the individual. And so therefore, anti-racism, what does it entail? Correcting those bad beliefs. And so you implement so many trainings and you try to get white people to think better thoughts about, say, Asian Americans, they're not viruses after all, et cetera, et cetera. I think that my account is actually that's rather backwards. Racism is something that arises out of structures and systems. The individual stuff is simply the ideological justification, the kinds of things we have to believe, right? The concepts or language we have to use and deploy to make sense of and excuse away the world we live in. And so the racism, as I say, follows. It doesn't often lead. It's a way of dressing up our society to make it feel better. The example I often use is I drive around Waco, you might drive around parts of LA, and you see a lack of infrastructural investment, a lack of access to education or healthcare. And instead of saying, why have we created a society that has such extraordinary forms of inequality and injustice? in its material expressions, like these things, hospitals, schools. Instead, we say, oh, it must be because these people are black or brown or yellow or what have you. And so the race is used to justify our world. And insofar as we avoid that depiction of race, what I call racial capitalism, we do so because it allows us to have the more convenient story, which then lets most of us off the hook. Then what anti-racism is, is calling out individuals, shouting them down, removing them from polite society. But that kind of virtue signaling, the benefit of it is, is it keeps in place our lives. So that's what I'm pushing is this much broader account of racism and much better people have done so much better before me and long before me. Well, it's because when it's individual, it's potentially, well, that's not me. That's someone else's problem versus if it's systemic, it's no, this is all of our problem. That's right. That's why the virtue signaling is the ultimate diversionary tactic. And I say that one of the individualizing ways that you describe as problematic, the one, one of the ways we do that is we focus on specific racial identities and specific relational personalities. Blame issues on a person's racial identity 
versus the political economy that produces those identities, right? So I think we all know by now that the world isn't actually divided into five discrete races that can be traced to a person. Wait, it's not? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I guess some of us know that the world cannot be described in these discrete races that can be reduced down to biology or genetics or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that we've quite taken up the implications of that lesson, which is, insofar as that's not true, why have we continued to perpetuate that lie? What does it do? So the question I want people to ask isn't, is racism bad and who are the races? The question I want people to ask is, what does racism do? What does it accomplish? What does it make possible? If we largely agree at this point that racism is destructive and evil, why does it persist? So that's the question I want people to ask. And I think that's a much more uncomfortable question than who are the racists and how can we get rid of them? What do you think that should lead people to do from just a pure solution standpoint? Once people kind of come to that conclusion and this idea of taking greater ownership, what are the sort of practical things that we should start to think about more then? Yeah, in some sense, that's the big question. And my thought or worry is that we don't want to ask that question, right? Because if that's- It's harder. It's harder. It's much harder because if you say, how's racism working practically, materially in its concrete reality, and you see that it's actually things like structures and systems. So let me give you an example. We often talk about gentrification, and we describe the problem of gentrification in narrow racial identitarian terms. We say something like white people are moving in on brown people and pushing them out of house. And we think that racial story takes up the reality of gentrification. No, race is playing a much more complicated story in gentrification. Gentrification has a lot to do with things like how cities invest in local neighborhoods how governments disempower local communities, how schools are zoned, et cetera, et cetera. If you just make it a story about the evils of white people, right? that's one thing. It's a very different story. We say, well, actually, this was created. This actually has a history. And that history suggests things could have gone differently. And if that's the case, then we can choose into different possible futures. If that's the case, then you actually have to do something. And my worry is that too much anti-racism is possessed of allowing us to kind of sit back and virtue signal. In reality, that virtue signaling, what it's kind of disguising is, hey, I actually benefit from the fact that my schools are zoned this way. And it never then puts into question that zoning. And it's never going to ask me to go out and organize for something differently. Oh, it's kind of the not in my backyard, back to the virtue. virtue yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, not in the backyard a- movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because racism is always, of course, out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's never in your own house. Yeah. It's anything. never in your job, where your kids go to school, what kind of education you've chosen for them, the kind of health care you have access to as a matter of course that millions of Americans do not, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as you keep it nice and abstract, then it's not in your backyard and then it's not in your conceptual backyard. As a theologian, how do you bring faith and religion into some of these arguments. Because what we've seen historically in America, even in other countries, right, India, are movements and change is sometimes rooted in religion as well. So as you kind of make some of your arguments and your recommendations, how do you bring your faith and your study of faith to kind of these arguments? In some ways, you can't not do so. Because I mean, the example of India is a really great example of South Asia that you can't tell the story of American racism without also telling the story of American religion. 
because American religion is all up in racism. And so you can imagine a kind of unholy trinity between white folks, racism, and Christianity. So any serious story about American racism will involve that infrastructural reality. That also means that any serious story or proposal of anti-racism also needs to imagine the religious elements of it. And so how do you both tell how these things are integrated in these towards these negative outcomes, but also then what imaginative capacities are left for telling the story of religion that might prove in positive outcomes. Yeah. Now, there it's are not just the problem. How can it be part of the solution? Yeah. And no, there are large swaths of academics who, because of the unholy Trinity have sworn off religion because they can only go badly. And if they say that they have a lot of good reasons, but I can't believe that. Right. So in some sense, it goes back to the childhood experience of trying to make do in this case, I have to justify my own life as a Christian, as a person who really cares about the outcomes of racism. And so maybe it's going back to that autobiography is trying to imagine how one's own story isn't simply, as you're saying, part of the problem, but maybe there's some possible good things that could come out of it. Are there any stories that kind of stand out in your study? I know in some of your past writing, you've talked about not just The Wire, but but also you talk about the Mississippi Delta. I guess to kind of illustrate your point, are there any kind of moments in our kind of shared collective conscious or history that kind of stand out? Yeah. So the book tries to flesh out the theories of racism and anti-racism that I just described. So the first half, I mean, you're from the South, so you're Asian and Asians in the South isn't usually the thing most Americans think. But insofar as that that's been a reality for some hundreds of years now, it actually yields to some pretty interesting insights on how these things work. So in the case of the Delta Chinese, these are folks that came to America as almost all Chinese did. In fact, as most South Asians did for the 19th century, they came as migrant laborers, indentured servants in a sense. And so they're kinds of contract workers. They came to America. Well, what happens at the end of the 19th century, second half of the 19th century, of course, emancipation, which means the entire economy that is the backbone of the emerging Northern Hemisphere built on cotton, which is built on slavery, that thing begins to unravel once you emancipate American slaves. So what planters were looking for was new exploitable labor. What was new in this occasion was who they're going to exploit. The practice of exploiting labor and turning human beings into property is as old as America. So you have this juncture where you don't have enslaved persons or no longer legally enslaved persons. So these planters, which again, constitutes the backbone of much of civilization at this point, requires new exploitable labor. So they find them in the Chinese, they bring the Chinese to the South, the Chinese refuse these terms and they stay in the South. And so the story then becomes, how do they make their lives work. And it's an amazing story because who can doubt the extraordinary forms of courage and resilience of these Americans? Because they are bracketed by the color line. They're neither black or white. These folks literally lived on the color line because they weren't allowed to live in white neighborhoods and no one can make sense of them in black neighborhoods. So they live right in the middle. And so you have these extraordinary stories of courage and resilience But you also, if you kind of look a little closer, you realize their lives are largely enabled by forms of political economic exploitation, namely 
insofar as they sit in the middle of that color line, it puts them in positions of exploiting their black neighbors' desperations created by white powers, white supremacy, and white nationalism. And so they open up these stores and they do pretty well. And there's an interesting moment in the story where they also get adopted into Southern Baptist white churches. And so these people become simultaneously the most Christian per capita of Chinese in America and the most wealthy. So the Christianity and the wealth and the exploitation once again go on. It's a version of the unholy trinity just then adopted by Chinese migrants. That story was one of the most amazing that I've come across. And what was also amazing is that there's still people alive that were operators of these stores. And you heard very different kinds of stories. A lot of these folks, they eventually stayed there. They became wealthy. A lot of them are now associated with kind of Trumpian republicanism, which is not uncommon within that kind of American. Well, once you make your money, right? Yeah, like yeah exactly. So the Trumpianism becomes a kind of rear guard action to protect your money. But some of them come to terms with what they were doing. And there are terrible regrets. And luckily, I found some of them. And they tell these really powerful stories. So that's one set of stories. Then another set of stories I tell is a contemporary religious community church in San Francisco that also faces the reality of racial capitalism and tries to imagine a whole different set of possibilities. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Jonathan. (laughs) Yeah, but my larger point is that that's probably a more accurate picture of how racism operates in our society. So going back to the convenience story, we tend to want to have these hyperbolic images of the racist, the white dude who underneath his bed, he's got the white sheet clan. (laughs) Right, right. He goes out. The supervillain, right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. The supervillain goes out and burns crosses or maybe the redlining mortgage worker or the red faced sheriff with his attack dogs attacking those poor civil rights workers. And then going back to your image earlier, then you have the heroic anti-racist who stands up and shouts down this reality. No, I think the majority of the realities of racism is the kind of quiet ways we participate and perpetuate these systems and we make money off of them. And so then the heroic story isn't going to be as easy as shouting it down. It's going to be some pretty personal questions about kind of where you live and what kinds of investments you have. And It's going to be wonky. It's going to be really yeah. wonky. Very, yeah. very, yeah. So- I tell the story of the Delta Chinese not to demonize them or to say that they're somehow exceptional. In fact, I think that they're characteristic, not only of a lot of Asian Americans, but Americans, that this is the vulgarization of American culture. Yeah. That's where it's so interesting that the term, right? The term racial capitalism, you can't disaggregate those two things from each other. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about Asian Americans is the role they play in this conceptualization. So let's say we've tended to think about race in these narrow, as I described, convenient ways. And therefore, anti-racism is issued in forms of kind of politics of identity, white people versus non-white people. And white people used to rule. Now let's bring whitey down to size. Let's say we've moved from that or we're transitioning to that, what I call the anti-racist orthodoxy, to a more structured and serious and sophisticated account of racism. I mean, as one piece of evidence, the New York Times ran an article not long ago that said, what do we mean by structural racism? It was an account similar to the one I just described. So if we're making that transition, one question you might ask is, how are we making it? And one of the things I try to argue is that Asian Americans actually help us make this argument. Because there's a way of telling the Asian American story that goes with the old story, but then you're not sure how to fit Asian Americans into that old story, right? Because they're not black or white. 
you keep on forcing, you keep on banging their heads up against the brick wall of the white black binary. And you just keep on trying to expand out the categories to include them. It just doesn't work. I think we've been doing that for like four or five decades. Instead, we might use our lives in America as a prism through which we see actually those ways of thinking about things don't work for anyone. They don't work for Asian Americans. They don't actually work for white or black folks either. And so once you turn to the Asian American version of the story, then it, in a sense, explodes the story. And I'm sure you can make the same kind of argument, right, for Latinx or Hispanic communities, maybe in even more obvious and painful ways. And so what I've tried to do is to take the pain of what I describe the experience of Asian Americans being marginalized by anti-racism after having been first marginalized by racism. I try to take that story, which is, I think, for many of us who have experienced it, and it's certainly the case in academia, to take my friend Melissa Borhall's phrase, take turn pain into power, and to imagine our marginalization as laying bare the larger realities of race and racism in America. And so one of the things I want to say is one of the ways we're moving to a more racial capitalist or structural systemic approach to racism is by people who have been excluded from the story in the first place. That's great. It's something where we're seeing that a lot within academia, for sure. And I think you raising it in this way is it's actually just making me question my own actions in some ways, because we're all participating in this in some way, but where are we putting our focus? Where are we putting our investments? What businesses am I supporting? Or just what am I also doing as an Asian American as well in this way? I think once we come to terms, it implicates so much of our lives. You realize that so many of the convenient tropes or institutional practices that we have are all up in legitimating the convenient picture of racism in order to make possible our lives. So mm-hmm. think about something like DEI culture, which diversity, equity, inclusion within institutions, this is taken as a very significant intervention, anti-racist intervention. But we want to ask questions, does DEI, first of all, does it work, which most of the empirical evidence suggests it doesn't work very well. But even if it works, what does it do other than diversify elite spaces? So you have more diversity at Google, or you have more diversity at Duke University, But those are highly elite spaces. And those forms of diversity mask the way Google and Duke University or a Baylor University participates in systems of extraordinary inequality. Well, it gives the rest of us a checkbox. We checked a box. We don't have to solve the other thing because we did the thing here. Big checkbox. But even more innocent practices and more intimate practices, how we talk about white people. And so you have concepts of whiteness and this kind of thing. And as a person who's experienced tons of racism by white people and have studied the history of white people, I get it. But one of the questions I want us (laughs) to ask is how helpful is it to continue to tell white people that the most important feature of their lives is that they are white? It seems to me that they've been telling themselves that long enough. I'm not sure that the rest of us telling them that is going to (laughs) help our situation. It simply reaffirms the idea that there's something essential to persons called race and that white people are possessed of a white race. It might be better to actually destabilize the categories, right? And to say, well, how are they made? What are they doing? And how do we begin to think differently than this? And that's a hard cry. That's where you worry that the best forms of anti-racism are just re-inscribing the problem. And that's one of the things I'm really after in the book. For Asian Americans, this is hugely important because we're, as you all know, we're experiencing these terrible waves of anti-racism in microaggressive form, but also in just the most brutal depictions of 
hatred and violence, in some cases, murder. And the question we will ask is, what are the available political scripts for how to respond? And I think one thing that we have been tempted to in this moment is forms of racial nationalism, to double down on Asian American identity, say, as a bulwark against white racial identity. And my worry is that that just reinscribes the problem. How do we take stock of the very specific forms that we experience without essentializing those forms to say that there's something essential about Asian Americans when any of us know, say we have on this call, East Asians, Southeast Asians, South Asians. We know that the very term Asian Americans, it's already absurd. So we know it's absurd, but yet there's a temptation to essentialize it, to actually think it names something substantive because that makes us feel like we have a foothold in the face of the violence. (laughs) Jonathan, you're so brilliant. And I feel like there's so much in your mind that you've dug into. If I were to ask your kids what lessons they've learned from you, what do you think they would tell us? Oh, this is a great question. So when I, I wrote the book during the pandemic and they were home for a lot of it. So they, in some sense, experienced firsthand the production of the book. So when the book finally came out, they both celebrated my ending, no longer having to write it. One of them made this fantastic YouTube video that depicted me like a Hamilton writing type of character, writing like I'm running out of time. And my daughter, who's an artist, made me this fantastic pillow that you know, mimics the book cover. We talked a lot about it around the table. The fact is my kids are the only Asian Americans really at their schools, and they've always been that. They did not grow up in places like Southern California or New York. So race is a huge part of their life. But I find that with their generation, race plays a different kind of role. So for example, they say that my wife and I constantly ask racial questions that where they w- those questions would never occur to them. So an initial question we will usually ask is if they start talking about someone, we'll usually say, what are they? Oh, interesting. (laughs) And they'll be like, what do you mean? We mean racially. And they'll be like, why does that matter? (laughs) Why do you always ask that question? They go to schools where there's a lot of other non-Asian people. So there's a lot of black folks, a lot of Hispanic folks, a lot of white folks. So it registers to them. They recognize privileges and benefits accrue in certain places. It doesn't hold the same kind of significance. And I think whereas in the past, people of my generation might have seen that as a problem, like you're colorblind or something like that. I don't think that's quite what's happening for them, that there's a greater level of sophistication by which they understand these concepts. And I think something good, something salutary, something to learn from. And that's something my wife and I've tried to do. But going back to the book, yeah, there's a lot of conversations around the book. There's a lot of conversations about what the lives of their friends are relative to their lives as kids, a wealthy professor, the lives of their Black friends in East Waco, which is where one of their schools are located. So there's a lot of conversation about that. And there's certainly conversation about being Asian American. If you could talk to that younger Jonathan, who's somewhere between tragedy and Zeus, what would you tell him? Oh, what a question. Okay. So this is me being my most courageous. In reality, I would do something with greater cowardice, my guess. But what I would say to that kid is that it's okay to be where you're at. When you're poor and you've suffered and you see suffering and you're moving all the time and you experience, I grew up at a time where it's not simply that racism is accepted, it's expected. It's just the racial slurs are constant and they're from every direction. Every kind of person is racist towards Asian Americans. There's a dream there, and this is the most pernicious version of the American dream, that the way you're going to escape this is you're going to make it. And in making it, you're going to get enough 
of a kind of material prosperity that you're going to barricade yourself from this reality. And that's a large part of the dream I've had. In some ways, if I were to narrate what Christianity saves me from, in some sense, it saves me from that dream, that a painful life is saved by a secure life, that a life of migrancy is secured by a life of security. And I think one of the most pernicious, and I don't think we Asian Americans talk about this as much, the most pernicious thing about the model minority myth isn't that it gets us wrong. Clearly, it does. It's not even that it disciplines other races and saying you all should be like Asian Americans. That's clearly evil and pernicious to say that. I think what's most pernicious about the model minority myth is the temptation it offers to Asian Americans. That at the heart of the American story, and therefore the heart of the Asian American story, is that we should pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we should live lives of upward mobility. And if we need to participate in systems of inequality to do so, so be it. I think that's the most deadly version of the model minority myth is that exactly that it's not a myth for a lot of our brothers and sisters. They think that they should live those lives and it never occurs to them to do otherwise because in a sense, that's largely what they've told is the story of immigration in America. So what I would tell my younger self is it's okay that you grew up that way, not that you want people to have to live under those conditions, but that in a sense names the human condition and no amount of securitization or commodification or exploitation is worth the price to get you out of it. I think that's what I tell myself because it's always the case that in the midst of suffering, we are tempted by narratives that will make sure the suffering never, ever happens again. The problem with that story, and this is what I think Christianity tells us, is that suffering isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. There's far worse things that can happen to you. Jonathan, this has gotten very deep. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I think it's the nerd in me, or maybe it's too early in the morning. So It's the writer, academic in you. And I think it's time for speed round. Are you ready for your speed round, Jonathan? Speed round, speed round me. Yes. What is one thing about you that no one expects? Gosh, I need to have a speedy round. <laughs> no one's ever ready for a speed round. Okay. A speed pause. <laughs> uh, okay. Speed round is something people would never expect is that in day-to-day life, I'm actually not a very stubborn person. <laughs> people tend to think because I have such strong opinions, I'm a very pain in the ass person to be around. And I am for sure in some ways. <laughs> I'm pretty relaxed in day-to-day life about most things. So people are often surprised. Well, okay. So I think... I'm much less stubborn than my spouse. Now, of course, I'm guessing every spouse tends to think that. Right. In in most things, in most life, I hold things pretty loosely. I'm a pretty relaxed person. In some sense, I'm a a true Southern Californian in that sense. Yeah. So that's one thing, maybe. It's funny. One of my favorite kind of precepts is strong beliefs weekly held. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. Yeah. Jonathan, what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? I love the movie Magnolia by P.T. Anderson. Oh, wow. Tom Cruise. Okay. Maybe Tom Cruise's greatest performance and maybe one of his most underappreciated. So the story for those who don't know is a series of vignettes that seemingly are disconnected, disjointed, each of which have the theme running through them that the sins of the father are inherited by the children. And it tells the story of how painful this is to inherit a generation's evil. But the great thing about the movie is that it's not clear that the stories are ever reconciled. 
And I think being raised in America means you think your stories will always be reconciled somehow. Somehow things are going to turn out right. That's what we tend to be taught. But if you come to terms with how difficult a lot of our world is, that seems like a fantasy. And I think what <laughs> things that Magnolia pushes is if things are going to turn out right, how will they, but whether they ever will. <laughs> the thing that you liked about the movie, the lack of conclusion <laughs> as allegory, that's what frustrated me about the film. I was like, I need conclusion. This is a movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, not to ruin it for people, but the ending of the story is so strange. You're just not frogs, sure. frogs, yeah, like frogs falling, falling from the sky as a reference to the biblical image of the plague of frogs. But you're like, what does this have to do with the story? And there's like fierce debate. I mean, I think critics think Anderson is a brilliant dude, but they're like, I have no idea what to do with that ending. <laughs> I've never you know, seen that character. I'm going to add it to my queue. I've never seen that film. Oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an investment. It's like three hours, three and a half hours long or something like this. And no clear ending. Yeah, that seems like, I think I'd be pretty annoyed. But going yeah, into yeah. it knowing makes me somewhat prepared. So that's that's probably acceptable. What is your favorite mom dish? My favorite mom dish is any dish at this point. My mom is a fantastic Vietnamese cook. So whenever we go home to Southern California, she always insists she makes tikka, which is a kind of pork belly braised pork belly dish. So anything mom cooks, I just consider it a gift, partly because that's what happens when you've lived 20 years away from mom. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. What's your least favorite food? I've been to... <laughs> Earlier, I said we shouldn't say too many negative things about white people, but here I go. We <laughs> lived in London or in St. Andrews for some time, and we just thought the food was horrible. <laughs> we, just, we found the Indian food up. in London is great, though. There's a lot of great food, but it's very seldomly to us the English food. Yeah. So yeah. we always found ourselves probably unsurprisingly drawn to all the Asian food in England or in the UK. So you're not a fan of shepherd's pie? I'm Are not, or haggis, yeah. or hangers and mash. Hangers yeah. and mash. Yeah, like that. Yeah, never a fan. So how about scones and clotted cream? I feel like that's acceptable. No, I think Europeans do desserts better. Yeah. I'll give them desserts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sometimes this is my unpolitically correct take. You like you eat the European food, you think to yourself, you can see why these people search the world for other food. So. <laughs> You're right. They went on a whole journey for spices. <laughs> yeah, you know, they destroyed whole worlds. For spices. Imagine what the world would look like if they just had decent food. <laughs> right, exactly. It would be a totally exactly. different world. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Besides me and Roman, of course. Yeah, I feel like I've satisfied all my <laughs> You'll never want to do a podcast again. <laughs> podcast should end at this very moment. <laughs> Living or dead? Living yes. or dead, both, either. I mean, living, it would certainly be folks that I've written about, Black radical theorists, Cornell West, Adolf Reed, the Field Sisters. Those are just folks who have not only pioneered anti-racist concepts and theories, but often over and against their own local communities. So really amazing folks. I would love to meet Jesus. I'm sworn, I'm committed to saying that as a Christian, but I seriously would like, dude, how did you live that kind of life? And what did it mean to absorb all the bad stuff of the world and give the world all your good stuff? I would certainly want to do that. But then you think about the various characters in history. You think about some of the female saints in the history of the church. How did you do this? So Jonathan, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I would like to think it means 
absorbing and inhabiting the stereotypes, being modern model minorities, and then blowing them up from the inside. That's one of the things I love best about living in Waco, Texas, because I know the people around me have senses of how I should be or what it means to be me. And I love to upset those stories. I love all the ways that my kids do that. I love the very Asian hashtag and I love it in Texas (laughs) because (laughs) we receive these scripts of how we're to be scripts given to us by white society, but also Asian American society. And how do we live into them honoring the inheritances that we have but also how do we move them and project them in ways that were unimagined by our predecessors? I love that stuff. It's the American way. That's what this podcast is, it seems to me, is it articulates and embodies and shows how this can be done for kids like my kids who grow up in places like Waco, Texas, for whom there are very few scripts for being Asian American. A podcast like this says there's actually a lot of ways. Well, Jonathan, I haven't known you long. But the more I've read about your work and the more we've just kind of dug into it, I can't wait to continue to hear more. So thanks just for continuing to do the work you do. And thanks for sharing the space with us for an hour or so. Thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Listening to Whoa. Whoa. Hot Luck. Hot luck. Hot luck.